If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. And like always, we'll be here every week. You'll hear from TV writers, actors, comics creators, pop culture critics. Nothing is off the table. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. I will say for me, anything I've ever been involved in that I thought was good, I've never said the word, this is a hit. You know, you look at it and you go, this is first, like, this is a thing. There's something here. And if we keep doing this, it's going to be good. And if we get a little lucky, it actually will be something significant. And that's just the way I've always looked at it. I've, I've never been surprised. Like, oh my God, I had no idea that was good. But I've certainly been surprised on the downside times, but I've definitely been surprised when finally, not pleasantly like, oh my God, they're catching on to what we've known for a while. Kevin Riley uh, was the president of NBC Entertainment through the uh, entire first chapter of The Office from when the show was pitched all the way up through the development and the first couple of seasons of the show. The modest and humble beginnings of a tremendous television show. Hello, everybody. So glad that you could join me today for this very special episode of Off the Beat. I am but your humble host, Brian Baumgartner. Today, we have a fascinating guest. I know you're going to love it. Kevin Riley joins the program once again. For those of you who don't know, Kevin is a Goliath in the television world, a legend who makes television work from the inside out. More on that in a bit. It's hard to believe that he started out as a production assistant, running coffee orders and making copies for music videos. And he worked his way all the way up to being network president at multiple networks, by the way. His resume looks like alphabet soup. <laughs> That's a business term. He's worked for just about every television acronym there is. NBC, FX, TNT, TBS, HBO, Fox, Turner Media, and many, many more. He's advocated for some of your favorite shows, including The Office, which we have talked to him about before, even when other execs wanted to shut those shows down. And he has been a visionary for television programming and streaming innovations for over 30 years. Years. That's right. Kevin 
has his hand in so many shows, including The Sopranos, The Shield, Nip Tuck, 30 Rock, The Office, and so many more. I'm excited for you to hear his story, his his career path, and also his take on the writers and actors strike that's going on right now. Of course, I stand with my guild, but I know for a fact that unless both sides talk to and understand each other, we're not going to get anywhere. So it's really special and important to me that Kevin and I got to have this conversation at this particular point in time. I learned a lot, and I I think you will too. So have a listen. Here he is, my old and dear friend, Kevin Riley. Bubble and squeak, I love it. Bubble and squeak, I know. Bubble and squeak, I cook it every morning Left over from the night before What's up, Kevin? There's the man. How's it going? (laughs) Outstanding. Good to see you, buddy. It's great to see you. We still haven't golfed. I know. We're going to remedy that very soon. (laughs) Yes. My golf game is in shambles right now. So if perfect, you're the, so, I'm your perfect partner. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You're, uh, yeah. If, if you like to play for money, now's a good time to get me. How, uh, uh well, I would say, how, how's it going? I can't, it, I can't believe it's been three years since, uh, three, we lasted. I, That's a little scary, actually. I know. Well, time stops during yeah. COVID for sure. Oh, wow. It was, oh, that was like the timing, huh? Yeah. I that guess that was the timing. Sense. You know, I don't have one of those brains that can do chronology. You know how some people can just go, oh, in, uh, in 2008, I did this. and do that. I can't do that to begin with. But once you threw COVID into the mix, I have, I'm like wheels off. People go, hey, when did you start that thing? I go, um, I can't do it. I know. I was just, I was just doing it myself. Think, anytime it's like, you know, oh, I went somewhere. I was in a city. I yeah. did this thing. How long ago was that? Oh, that was like two years ago. Oh, yeah. in the middle of COVID? No, I guess it was seven years ago. Yeah. <laughs> like, that's, exactly. that's 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 what happens. But yes, it's been three years. We had such a great conversation, but you know, we were really focused on the office yeah. during that time. And you have such an interest. It's crazy. Like of all of my shows, like my favorite shows since 2000 almost all of them you had your you had you were involved in one way or the other and truly like changed the face of television changed in some ways how people consumed we'll talk a little bit about that during your time at <laughs> or fox you, or used to consume yeah well but yeah. but even so you know how how people consume and yeah. and 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 what they were consuming on different networks so mm-hmm. i'm i'm really excited to talk to you and then talk a little bit about what's going on in the industry right now. But going back for you, you grew up in Long Island, Mm -hmm. right? In New York. Mm -hmm. Were you a New York kid? Like, were you taking advantage of the city? And yeah, but you know, when you, when you, you know, when you grow up outside New York City, if you're not in New York City, there's just a hard line differentiator between a city kid and a Long Island kid, you know, I mean, especially if you're, a condescending New York kid. You're like, you're from where, you know? <laughs> so yeah, it was, 
20 minutes without traffic, two hours with traffic. Right. So no, I, I kind of would go into the city. I mean, I had, I had a, my, my best friend going up, his, his father managed the New York Athletic Club, which was like a, just an institution. And he was a kid who was just like, a, he was the fourth child. And at that point, the parents were like, you know, wheels off. They were a great family, but he just got, so I just, we, I would go in with him and we would have these crazy adventures where we'd end up being extras in a movie. We'd go under the stanchion in a crime scene. I mean, we had some crazy adventures in New York City, but no, I was not a city kid. Right. What were your favorite television shows as a kid? What do you remember watching? Oh, shit. I had a wild swath of things. I mean, when I was a little kid, lost in space, somehow I just like, I, I was in syndication. I mean, I hate to say it, but I'm so fucking old that it was like the still the three channel universe. And I would just sit there changing the channel and staring at this before dinner every night. My mother would be like, turn that thing off. Yeah. <laughs> right, right. But I like what, you know, I watched I Love Lucy reruns with my mother. Um, you know, I mean, I got um, laugh in. I got to stay up and watch Goldie Hawn in a bikini. And I was like, wow, this this thing is cool. I didn't even I was like some, that, there's something going on with this show. Like generationally, that was a whole different kind of thing. And then when I got into sort of the Monty Python kind of age, I just right. found those guys were seminal influence to me. Did you watch Saturday Night Live as a kid? Yes. And that was probably one of the coolest things when I finally, when I went back to be the president of NBC and I became friends with Lauren and I still am. And I, like an actual friend of Lauren's, we kind of bonded over 30 Rock in particular, which was, you know, Tina Fey was really one of Lauren's favorites. And she was not only the head writer, but, you know, it became a really significant thing. So when I actually got to sit in the booth with Lauren down in studio at 8, 8H and I was like, man, if you told me when I was a kid, cause I was, look, I was right at that age where it was just a groundbreaking thing. And I would have to remember running home to watch Saturday Night Live at 1130, you know, at just that prime age of whatever the hell I was in my teens. And I was right. like, this is it. So sort of on some level, those were kind of where I decided I have no idea what this is. I don't know, even know how you get into that business. I don't have a clue, but that's, I really knew back then that's what I wanted to do somehow. You wanted to be involved in television. Just entertainment. Yeah. I mean, television, but you know, it was just like, I want to, I want in on whatever that is. And I came out to California to visit Disneyland with my parents when I was in sixth grade. And I was like, I guess this is where they make movies and things and there's palm trees here. And I just was like, note to self, I'm doing this and coming here. And I, it was a long, windy, twisty road and I didn't know, and I was clueless on that road, but I figured it out. It's funny because similar. And then for me, it really happened later. But you know, when I was traveling around the country doing theater, I remember visiting for the, and I had, you know, a friend of a friend <laughs> who was friends with Callista Flockhart. <laughs> and I got invited to come out for a Midsummer Night's Dream, uh -huh. I guess was the movie Callista uh -huh. Flockhart was in. And I came out and I was staying near Westwood and there was this thing called coffee bean where everyone sat outside so exotic in the sun yeah and drank 
freezy drinks and Faye Dunaway. But you learned then that in L.A. somehow there's a lot of people that seem to have no cares in the world and they're no. just sitting around in the middle of the day drinking coffee. They're sitting like, around. I don't know who these people are, but, uh, you know. I, well, I thought it yeah. just happened once I you know. were there. Yeah. And yeah, it was like exactly like note to self. I don't need to be freezing myself in Minnesota yeah, for that yeah. much longer. Let's move out here. Yeah. Um, you went to Cornell. I did. Speaking of freezing your ass off. Yes. Yeah. So when you were at Cornell, mm-hmm. were you thinking about being involved in entertainment? Yes. I still had no clue what it was. Okay. I, I mean, look, I became a communications major thinking that was somehow going to impact. I took classes. I took screenwriting classes at Ithaca College, which actually had sort of a legit program. And uh, I think about it now because it's pre-Google, you know? I mean, I don't even know how anybody figured out anything. I mean, it's it does make you be crafty, but you'd have to go get a few of the books that were written or you'd maybe right. some magazines would be stuff. So I'd gleaning whatever I could. But the one couple things I did well, which is I just, I had a lot of pressure. I mean, everyone I grew up with ended up in somehow Wall Street, if you will, whether they were a trader or, or if they had bigger brains, they became a, an investment banker and everybody kind of did that. And a lot of guys when you graduated had job offers and their acceptance letters on the wall. I didn't, I didn't, I was, t- I tended bar. I was like, I better right. go pay the bills because my father, who did not support this career choice to begin with, was definitely not going to support it and support me. <laughs> right. So I just tended bar. That's what I went to do. Well, I went to some programs at NYU and just ran around New York City from my parents' house in Long Island trying to figure out who would give me a break. You talked about taking a screenwriting class. Did yeah. you ever see yourself as a writer or as an actor? Yes. I, I didn't really understand. I just knew I loved it all. And and there were moments of kind of having my toe in each kind of pond a little bit. You know, acting, I moved away from pretty quickly because I just was like, I had actor friends. I, I loved it. But I was like, boy, I don't I don't think I can do this. You know, the, the job of being the actor, you know, not the craft, the job part of it. I just like, man, I just don't think I have that kind of personality. And it, it scared me. It probably scared me too much, you know, because... My parents just were not, look, they were great people. They just didn't get that at all. And the writing I had more discipline on, but then I kind of went the same route. I was like, man, I just spent two and a half year, years in New York. I don't think I ever slept. I was on the, I was carrying coffee on the sets of commercials and music videos. I did like 150 of them. I mean, literally didn't sleep. There were times I would get home at two in the morning and be like, okay, I need to be back on set at five. Uh, I've got to catch the train. I would set a clock and literally put it on my chest and sleep for 45 minutes and wake up and throw coffee in my face and go back to work. So it was all kind of a blur, but, uh, I did some writing, but I was, by the time I got to California where I just packed my car and winged it, drove across country with no month, like literally $800 to my name, which I spent very quickly. I just think I didn't have the guts, frankly, to say, all right, I'm going to be a writer. Um, I was like, I'll, I need something that's going to, if I get a job, will pay me in the short run. Right. And I had, I had regret about that for a, a number of years where I kept beating myself up for being a sellout, you know? And then I finally was like, well, if you're, then go write, you know? And then I was like, gave that, I was like, move on. <laughs> I did not know you drove 
you just packed up the car and went to LA. I know that fairly quickly, right? You ended up at, at Universal as a, on the publicist yeah, I mean, side. When I was driving across country, I drove the Southern route and I stayed with some, a bunch of college friends along the way. And in Atlanta, actually, I stayed with a guy who was a, in the hotel business and his roommate was in the hotel business and he gave me a name of a guy. He's like, look, I don't, I don't know what this guy does if he's at Universal Pictures and he puts actors in my hotel, in our hotel. When he comes to town, he's a nice guy. And then I like him. You should, you know, here's his name. And I was like, oh, I have contacts. You know, <laughs> I know Calista Flockhart's second uh, friend's yep. nanny. And right. I'm going exactly. to the premiere, you know? Yeah, right. exactly. So my contacts, I like threw that thing in my suitcase. And when I got to LA and all the people who said, call me when you get here, didn't return my phone calls. <laughs> and I was in a cold panic and like seriously running out of money and then out of money I like dug out that number and I called this guy at Universal who was a nice guy and I had a meeting he didn't hire me but a few months later when I was really starting to panic out of the blue he just called me up and just was like hey uh, I don't know what you're doing but we got this job he was in marketing and I didn't ever really want to be in marketing but he said look it's in publicity and promotion on you kind of a you know, number two person on the West Coast overseeing that part of it for us in the in the you know fil- f- feature film business. You know, would you be interested? And I was like, oh yeah, let me just check with my people. Uh, <laughs> sure, yeah, I think I can squeeze that in. So that was just like a huge break out of the blue, which was really me driving, stopping in Atlanta to go to Hooters with my idiot friend from Cornell and um, wow. in Atlanta. So that's how I got it. Wow. And then one year later, I mean, I did that. I really was. It was a very interesting experience, but like, yeah, I don't want to be in marketing. I want to be in the creative end. And then I, I had just through a bunch of weird connections kind of wangled my way into a dialogue at NBC. And I remember I was, you know, I was young at the time. I was still going out at night during midweek. And I remember we'd have these long, boring meetings, like three hour staff meetings. And I kept falling asleep in them. And (laughs) one day the head of the department of the marketing department, like threw a ball of paper at me while I was asleep. And I woke up and she goes, after the meeting, she goes, can I see you? And she said, look, you're really bright. And I have no doubt that if you stuck with this, you would run this department someday. But if you don't get your head into it, I'm going to fire you. And the problem was I was interviewing crazily to get out of this job and then kind of phoning it in and sort of lost interest in, in it, even though, thank God I had it. And literally two days later, I got offered a job at NBC and I went in and just told her like, you know what? We're on the same page. I'm quitting. So, and that was that. <laughs> Walking into NBC for the first time. Yeah. Was, was there a feeling like, was it like, I've made it mom? Yeah. You know, you, you just, I think like anything in life, I mean, I, for me, those seminal moments when they're actual happen, even down to like having children, like you're just sort of like, what? somewhere between overwhelmed in the moment or just like, Oh, I guess I'm doing this now. You know, I guess I'm (laughs) right. I guess this is happening, (laughs) but then you do have this moment. And quite often it would be to me be, you know, when you were busy during the day or look, I was, you know, half panicked, you're a young person, you're slightly into your head. You can't believe you even have this job. You're busy as shit. A lot of times it was like at the end of the day, you know, one of the still things about LA when the sun's setting and it's just, Temperature's really nice. I'd walk out and you're driving off the lot and you're like, huh. You know, I remember watching like 
for me on the NBC lot, it was usually guests leaving as I was like driving off the lot, guests leaving from their taping of the tonight show. So, you know, Jay Leno would do the tonight show or still Johnny Carson in those days. And they, you know, would tape from five to seven or whatever it was. And when the guests, you see the limos and you, sometimes you'd see them loading up in their car and we're driving out together. And those were the moments where I was like, cool, (laughs) I guess uh, I'm actually in the real deal here. Yeah. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. It it is there is that like evening time, sun is going down, like the air it does. It feels different. And if you sort of transport yourself to your younger self thinking about it, and there's like, you know, and then you get stuck in traffic on, you know, <laughs> yeah, on, the, on Burbank Boulevard or whatever for an hour and a half. Screeching halt literally. Right. You know? You're like, but there there yeah. are those moments where you're like, oh yeah, the, this is what yes. I this is what I thought. No, I have about. a memory of of specifically early on in my thing, driving down Sunset Boulevard. I had put all of the money I had on the East Coast saved up into a this used BMW with 110,000 miles on it because I was like, I need a car that's not going to, I mean, even though it was old, those things were built like, you know, they could go forever if you took care of them. And it was in such awesome shape. And I, it was the only thing I had. And I remember driving down Sunset Boulevard with the palm tree silhouetted and going like, oh man, here it is. The the Disneyland thing that I envisioned, you know, still sort of alive and well, I guess. Yeah. So you get hired, well, by Brandon Tartikoff, first yeah. manager of creative affairs, yeah. then the VP of drama development. Talk to me a little bit about your relationship with with Tartikoff. Close? Good? Yeah, I mean, this is a guy like I don't, you know, I I, I don't know who would be listening to this out there, but it's some either, you know, he. This was a guy at a time when guys who ultimately held the button of like there were you know, three doors to access the television world and then only maybe four meaningful ways to act, uh, you know, to truly access the film world. So if you had one of those chairs that kind of opened one of those doors, it was a really influential position. And this guy at a very young age was thought of as a genius in television. He had been promoted to the head of it when he was a very young guy. And he was both intimidating just by virtue of how great he was but i loved him i mean like he passed away at a really young age he had fought cancer a number of times and and eventually gave into it and in his 40s i think so it kind of gave him that james dean sort of status in the business but he he was just a witty guy who loved loved the medium he loved great tv he loved cheesy fun entertainment i remember one time i was on a plane and of course he was sitting in first class and i went past him and i remember like he sent a little like goofy note back to me he had ripped something out of variety and made like <laughs> right. a joke in the column and had like 20 people pass it back to me and i was like holy shit like this is like <laughs> my my boss's boss boss is sending me back this goofy note and i i love that about him So it was a cool experience and, you know, cut to, it was his actual, there was times when I would sit in his office on the couch, like the fifth one on the, someone said to me early on when I was like, how do you get into one of his jobs? He was a producer. He said, look, when I go into pitch and I'm pitching Tartikoff, there's like six other people on the couch drinking Evian. I don't know what they all do, but you want to be one of those people. 
<laughs> and so I was like the sixth one down on the couch drinking Evian. And, and I remember being in his office and going, I don't know, maybe someday I would do this. This would be cool to do this. And when I finally did many years later, get that actual job in his actual office that hadn't really changed much at all, even with a bank of, there were like eight televisions in a row. It used to be three, and then they added to them as right. more networks. Right, right. And I always thought that was cool. It's like, oh man, he's got all day long three things running all at once, so he can watch what's happening with the competition. And then when I got there, that was a you know cool moment too. Yeah, I I, I, I don't think I realized. I mean, I I know that I knew at some point that he died that young, but. It's like if you talk about NBC in the past, you talk about Tartikoff. Like his yes. name exists like, yeah, I don't know if it's James Dean or or Kennedy or any of those sort of leaders that unfortunately leave us too soon. And, and yeah, has that sort of lore. Yeah, you he died um, at 48. I just Googled 48. Wow. 48. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, And me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. Thank you for taking the light, and you're going to shine it all over the world, and it makes me really happy. I never imagined that I would get the chance to carry this honor and help be a part of this legacy. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Imagine you ask two people the same exact set of seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver, and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including actress and star of the mega-hit sitcom Friends, Courtney Cox. You can't go around it, so you just go through it. This is a roadblock. It's going to catch you down the road. Go through it. Deal with it. Comedian, writer, and star of the series Catastrophe, Rob Delaney. I shouldn't feel guilty about my son's death. He died of a brain tumor. It's part of what happens when your kid dies. Intellectually, you'll understand that it's not your fault, but you'll still feel guilty. Alt-rock icon, Liz Fair. That personal disaster wrote Guyville. So everything comes out of a dead end. And many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, stories from the frontiers of marketing. This week, I'm talking to acclaimed musician and entrepreneur, Mr. Worldwide himself, Pitbull. A lot of artists in general, people that are very creative, sometimes tend to overthink. That's one of my number one rules. Don't ever overthink. You can think ahead, but don't overthink. And what I mean by that is when they start to write a record, they're like, oh, that's not the line. Oh, that's not this. Oh, it's not that. And everybody has a creative process. I'm not knocking it. For me, I just let it flow. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark more than ever. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. While you were there during this time, you developed, I mean, cult, 
legendary Saved by the Bell. Talk to me about that. Talk to me about how Saved by the Bell came about. Well, I worked with uh, at the studio. So this idea that the, that used to be illegal, there were antitrust laws that prevented the stu- the networks from also producing their own thing. So we would just commission from outside studios, like Universal Television would produce the show for NBC. Those things were starting to evolve. And I was on the very first iteration of NBC Studios that became sort of their in-house. So that is how I really got to know Brandon, because there were only three employees at NBC Studios. My my second year at the company, which was Brandon, my boss, Leslie Lurie, and me. So, so I really did get to work with them even closer at a young age. And we were producing this show called Good Morning, Miss Bliss about a group of kids in school with Haley Mills, who was a famous actress from back in the day. And she was, I don't know, in her late 60s at this point in her thing. It was for the Disney Channel. We weren't even producing it for NBC. They canceled it. It was not good. And Brandon was like, take that, the cocky blonde kid, these other two girls, and the funny nerdy kid figure out what it is and we're going to do it ourselves and make it a hit and shove it down their throats. So that was like Brandon's competitiveness. Like they canceled his thing and now he was going to turn into a hit. And Peter Engel, who I'm going to text right now, who God bless him, is still going strong in his 80s, who created it, is a one of just a great inspired nut. It was my show. I was given this thing. We even cooked up the title uh, on a phone call one day of like, I was like, what is this thing about? What is it? And Peter's head writer at the time, I was like, look, this shouldn't be about school when you're in school. It's about what happens when you're out of school. And this guy, Tom Tenner, had said, yeah, you know, like say by the bell. And Peter was like, that's a great title. <laughs> and, uh, and that was the, and so on my first year, I worked on this thing and I was sort of depressed to be honest with you, because I was like, I'm spending all of my time doing this thing and all the primetime people are putting up all these really, you know, are working on like Seinfeld and things that became like institutions. And I'm doing this Saturday morning live action kids thing that no one gives a crap about. Cut to like 500 episodes later, (laughs) the thing became an institution and it was intended for like at the time, tweens watching Saturday morning TV, which is like one of the only things you had. There was like very few choices when you woke up. And what we never realized was like a whole generation of college kids, you know, of that age would wake up and kind of, you know, shake off their Friday night by right. vegging out watching this show. <laughs> and it became kind of a cult thing. Yeah. And I cannot tell you to this day how strong that thing is. I mean, oh my it's gosh. still alive and well. Well, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, as you say, cult, but yeah, it became an institution. I, did they really do 500 episodes? Is that Well, they did a couple of spinoffs then of, of, uh, California dreaming, dreamings or whatever they call it. They did a few iterations, but it was, it was in the hundreds, all in, in the franchise. You also, during that time, developed ER. Yeah. The network. Yeah. And you supervise the first season of Law and Order. I mean, yeah. these are legendary primetime television shows, both going over 20 seasons. So I, I guess they let you off of the Saturday morning eventually. They did. They did. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> then I kind of came back and uh, did that. Again, crazy. You know, the success squeaks its three through in weird ways, you know, like we went through in the office where 
you know, a super impactful generational show barely squeaked its way through life. I mean, that was my experience more often than not. I mean, Law and Order, which is now thought of as like this insane institution, you know, for a lot of listeners are probably like, yeah, my mother's watched it forever. (laughs) But at the time, it was this very novel thing. Dramas were not selling into syndication because nobody wanted to buy one hour shows. So Dick Wolf literally designed it as two half hour shows originally that we're going to do the the law and the order, but then they could be joined on the first run on television, but then they would be syndicated separately. NBC bought this show, not because they wanted this. This was Dick's like big show, but they wanted his hit show, which was going to be a thing called Nasty Boys, which was these guys with a souped up boat and they were a squad that came in in mass and they seized your property for drug raids and things. And when they did, they got to keep it. So they had super cool motorcycles and boats and (laughs) it was not a good show. And I'm working on, I'm, you know, now only a couple of years into my career and they kind of gave them to me in this. And I oversaw them. Everybody was like, how's nasty boys going? I was like, you know, this thing law and order is like, really, Oh yeah. That's talk about nasty boys. So nasty boys aired. I think it like came and went in less than one season. and. Law and Order was not a huge hit out of the gate, but was always a very kind of groundbreaking show at the time in terms of its rhythms and the kind of the dour. It was one of the early shows that talk, took policing as policing was kind of a, talking about a job, you know, like guys right. would be there like, you know, talking about their donuts and sort of stepping over the body, not like the old cops who were like, we need to solve this case, you know, which was like right. the old school way. Like, they're like, yeah, look, we see a lot of this stuff. and you know, witnesses weren't cooperative and lawyers had to make deals. And it was, those were like kind of a step forward. And then, you know, that was an institution. And then ER was a similar kind of thing where it was, when it was screened, it was in the screening room from the powers that be were like, we don't get it. (laughs) Right. Talk to me a little bit, because those two shows, I consider at least differently, what people refer to as procedurals. Yeah. And then there's What's the opposite of that? Well, there were serialized shows. So they're, serialized. they're actually two different things. So the procedural means a closed-ended thing, you know, and that's yes. one of the reasons that Law & Order had such incredible staying power. You didn't need to see season one. You didn't need to binge season five to catch up. You just, you could drop in any episode, a body dropped in the beginning, and the crime was solved at the end, case closed. And yeah. they've done, I don't know, at this point between the franchise of all the different iterations, I don't know how many hundreds of episodes, thousands maybe at this point, but a serialized show, which ER was and and many other great shows and many of the biggest shows today are, you know, it's an ongoing storyline. Now you had procedural elements in ER, which is, you know, the the medical cases would close, right. you know, come on, stat, get on the thing, come on, whatever. Somebody's right. going to lose, she's going to lose the baby, you know, oh, great. At the end of the thing, they save the baby. Like, so, all right, so that's closed. But the ongoing soap opera part of it, if you will, would go on sometimes the whole season. Right. And then you had to kind of catch up. And, you know, it was really weird. You know, it was a very sticky way of watching television. But you think about it now, there was no catch up or binge device. You had to just kind of watch to stay. You had to watch. For you on the network side, how do you make those decisions if you're going to pick up? Are you looking for a balance of both that you might be able to 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 sell later on or or how are those decisions made 
you know, the business is just so radically different now. I mean, obviously with the ability to binge something and watch at your own pace and start from the beginning with streaming, you know, when you had a one-way situation where it was a day and date, like it's on Tuesday at nine and you have to watch it Tuesday at nine and it may repeat somewhere down the road, but that it would be your only opportunity to watch. I, I think generationally you explain that to people and it's like trying to explain the telegraph, you know, you're like, what, why would you do that? Like this horse and buggy thing, like that sounds ridiculous. And what was crazy is the statistic of viewers, somebody who viewed them, I used to hear this statistic all the time. Even somebody considered themselves a viewer statistically would watch one out of six episodes. So I don't know how anybody followed anything, but <laughs> right, it was a lot of things went into it of like, you know, still serialized shows did not repeat well at all because you just were, it was just really hard to jump in and randomly see an episode. You're like, wait, when did, when did they split up? You know, I missed that episode. I don't even know what's going on. And right. Really dead shows, you know, like, I mean, look, the early seminal shows like a Hill Street Blues that really started multiple storylines going at the same time over the course of a season really made them big impact. But for a a day and date experience, it was always a little harder to program those things. So yeah, now that tends to be the norm because it's highly addictive. As you know, when you're you're into a storyline, it feels like you just got to keep Gotta watching, keep watching. Right. to the point of a binge today. Yeah. Why did you leave NBC and go to Brillstein Gray? I had uh, just sort of gotten the, the the network had gone through a roller coaster of being the top and then kind of getting beat up and having some management changes, and it just felt like time to make a change. I, you know, the tar- Tartikoff had left at that point. He hadn't passed on, but he had left. It was it was not being that much fun. I was getting frustrated. I mean, look, as a young guy, I, to the extent I've made any reputation in the the business, I always felt like I wanted to reach forward. Like you were saying, curious about what people were watching and what they wanted to watch differently than what was on. You know, there's a tendency in general for people to want to do what they've seen before. And in television, there wasn't that much desire, you know, the old guard to a large degree kind of wanted to just serve up the same, a version of the same thing they'd done a million times before. I was always like, what's next? What's new? And I could feel generationally that this thing was really changing. I mean, that's how some of these shows like ER that were like, what do you mean the the patient dies <laughs> and the doctor's making, what do you mean the doctors are making jokes while they've got somebody's chest open with a bullet, right. with a bullet wound? like. That's, you know, that's not what the heroes do. What do you mean a bad guy is the center of a show? These were rules you didn't break. And I was always like, well, why wouldn't you? Like, that's kind of what the, my generation, I could see the next one wanted. And so I was just getting kind of frustrated that this wasn't changing enough. So then Brillstein Gray was just this management company that had big clients that wanted to go into producing and it seemed like a, a cool move. And so that's what I did. Uh, while you were there, you worked on uh, many shows, yeah. uh, to name a few, just shoot me news radio, yeah. Steve Harvey show. And you also worked on the pilot of this little show called the Sopranos. Yeah. 
as the Sopranos is happening, are you aware of how good it is or what it has the potential to be? Not initially, because again, it was another failure. I mean, it was, right. what was so fascinating to me throughout my career and is that most of the things that have ended up in my resume and my bio were failures that, that became successes. You know, I mean, David Chase, who created it, I knew him through, you know, David was in his fifties at this point and he had been a, one of the really fine television writers. He was a rule breaker. You know, David's a guy who's always frustrated with the system. He wanted to do something more artistic than the formula. And he did it to pay the bills, but he was always grumbling about it. He's like, I'm doing this goddamn thing. (laughs) So we ended up giving him an overall deal. He was always like a new, uh, one of the better writers, pure writers. And we developed The Sopranos for, we sold it to Fox. And Fox was the upstart network that was doing quote unquote edgy stuff. And it went into development and it got all the way down the line. And we, La Paglia for a minute was attached as okay. Tony Soprano. Interesting. And we had at least interest from his camp and we were going to get it made. And then Fox passed on it. And then David was depressed and it kicked around for like two years just as a passed on project and eventually found its way over to HBO, who sort of picked it up to redevelop it, but pretty much had the same script that we had at Fox. It wasn't rewritten and uh, just took the fucks out of it. You know, we took all the stuff that you couldn't air on broadcast and then just put it back in right. and did a little bit more development. And then, uh, then they agreed to shoot the pilot and went through this casting process of the really inspired choice to cast Gandolfini, who was really the opposite of a leading man, but you can't conceive of anybody else doing that role. Yeah. After you shoot the pilot and you see what you have, do you see it? Like, are you able to see that it's going to change HBO and paid television? Our company had done the Larry, was doing the Larry Sanders show for HBO. Okay. So this is early, early yeah. HBO where they, they did two shows and we produced two of them. We, we did Deaf Comedy Jam, which was actually a very big show for them. And then on the opposite end of that spectrum, the Larry Sanders show, which was kind of, you know, a coastal show, really smart comedy. It was, it was a fraction of the audience of Deaf Comedy Jam. Interesting. But so they were, HBO was trying to find their footing too. And collectively, I think everyone was just sort of wading into this thing. So it was clearly, the pilot was clearly something special. But I will say for me, anything I've ever been involved in that I thought was good, you never go, I've never said the word, this is a hit. You know, you look at it and you go, this is first, like, this is a thing. There's something here. And if we keep doing this, it's going to be good. And if we get a little lucky, it actually will be something significant. And that's just the way I've always looked at it. I've, I've never been surprised. Like, oh my God, I had no idea that was good. But I've certainly been surprised on the downside times. <laughs> but I've definitely been surprised when finally, not pleasantly, like, oh my God, they're catching on to what we've known for a while. So yeah, the pilot was And Chris Albrecht at the time, and I've told him this story, I went over to screen the pilot. He screened it with Carolyn Strauss, who's gone on to produce many great things, most recently The Last of Us for HBO, which was incredible. 
And at the end, and I told Chris the story, he doesn't even recall doing it, but the lights came up and Chris literally put his head in his hands and, and, and was rubbing his eyes. And it felt like, it felt like five minutes of silence. And then he looked up and he was like, it's good. It's, it's really good. And I think he had to just wrap his hands around like this weird thing of where this guy burns down his best friend's restaurant and he's waiting in a pool with ducks. I think he just had to be like, okay, like, I think we'll do this. And, and weirdly, the moment where you really, really felt like I, it's been written about, but there was, I believe, the fourth episode, because prior to that point, Tony had never directly, he had circumstantially ordered hits or had talked about, you knew he yes. had his hands and stuff, but you never saw it directly or you never, you never saw him directly go, go kill that fucking guy. And then somebody's, it was indirect a lot of times. And that was yes. part of the art of it. You know, there was like the presumption, like, yeah, we, we did what we had to do. In the fourth, I believe it was the fourth episode of that season, that seminal episode where he's taking his daughter on a college trip and he sees a guy who's right is wrong and he chokes the guy to death with his bare hands. And that was, that was a, you know, now with where everything's has tra- transpired since feels like, well, yeah, what's the big deal? But at the time you're like, wait, this is the quote unquote hero of our show. It's one thing to know he's a bad guy, but he's a bad guy who we kind of like, and he likes ducks, and his mom doesn't treat him well. <laughs> so we were like, but now he is choking someone to death with his bare hands. That's a whole different ballgame. Like, are people going to just go, I'm out? Like, I, that's, I'm out. I can't get behind this guy. And it was a huge debate. And HBO, to their credit, this was the early days of them forming their DNA, basically said, okay, we'll back you. I mean, they first were freaking out. But they agreed to back it. And at that moment was when I think a lot of people involved were sort of like, wow, now this thing is really in a category of its and and I think many for them just galvanized this thing of like, you gotta see the show. Right. Do you think your experience working on that and the success that it had, how much do you think that that influenced choices that you made in your career once you became the boss later on? hugely influential i mean it had been building all the way up and with the number of things you even just referenced of of what i what my playbook and things my reference points were were not anything that were the same old same old i now was accumulating touchstones of things where i go oh here's where we stuck the finger in the eye of what you were supposed to do and it worked out great right so creatively in terms of the work yes that became a huge north star for me Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. Thank you for taking the light, and you're going to shine it all over the world, and it makes me really happy. I never imagined that I would get the chance to carry this honor and help be a part of this legacy. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Imagine you ask two people the same exact set of seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver. And this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including actress and star of the mega hit sitcom Friends, Courtney Cox. You can't go around it, so you just go through it. This is a roadblock. It's going to catch you down the road. Go through it. Deal with it. 
comedian, writer and star of the series Catastrophe, Rob Delaney. I shouldn't feel guilty about my son's death. He died of a brain tumor. It's part of what happens when your kid dies. Intellectually, you'll understand that it's not your fault, but you'll still feel guilty. Alt-rock icon, Liz Fair. That personal disaster wrote Guyville. So everything comes out of a dead end. And many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, stories from the frontiers of marketing. This week, I'm talking to acclaimed musician and entrepreneur, Mr. Worldwide himself, Pitbull. A lot of artists in general, people that are very creative, sometimes tend to overthink. That's one of my number one rules. Don't ever overthink. You can think ahead, but don't overthink. And what I mean by that is when they start to write a record, they're like, oh, that's not the line. Oh, that's not this. Oh, it's not that. And everybody has a creative process. I'm not knocking it. For me, I just let it flow. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark more than ever. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. You become president of entertainment at FX at the time. You transform that network. I mean, that network, you know, before you arrived doing a lot of syndication shitty shitty, just terrible reruns and one of my other favorite shows of all time that that changed television it's one thing to have a mobster strangle somebody when you start talking about the shield you've now you've now got cops who are doing very very naughty things was your decision and your confidence in greenlighting that and having that show go, it does that come from The Sopranos and the success? 100%. Like, yeah. I, I just, the business of it was that for all of its impact, HBO's audience penetration, at the time there was about 110 million viewing households in the country that could get television in, of some sort. Even cable was getting pretty highly penetrated at that point, you know, basic cable. But HBO's subscription cable, they were only in about 28 million homes. So only a fraction of the whole country had even gotten to see. They may have heard of The Sopranos, but I was like, Peter Liguori and I, who kind of were in the seats at the time, Peter had been at HBO as a marketing executive. His history was not as creative. I came over there. And we basically said, let's get as close as we can to HBO on basic cable. You know, we can't do everything they do, but we're going to try to be as sort of finger in your eye as possible. And this was written as a spec script, as a writing sample. It was given to me by, and, and somebody said, you should read this. This guy, Sean Ryan's a good writer. And I read it and I met with him and I said, well, we're going to make this. And he goes, what do you mean? And I go, well, we'll make this. And he goes, like that? I go, yeah, we'll make this. And he still, he couldn't believe it. He was a young guy, had never run a show. And it was truly one of the great experiences of my career. Just the whole thing that went down. We were, it was such a ragtag, shitty, I took a pay cut to go to that job. I went from these beautiful offices in Beverly Hills with 
magnificent, <laughs> literally recognizable art on the wall, and the designer <laughs> right. would have to approve your furniture choice, to this shithole on Sepulveda Boulevard. Literally, there was it was shag carpeting from like the 80s. There was a giant stain in the middle of it. There was a hole. Someone had punched a hole in the wall of my office and just hung a picture over it, but not. it didn't fully cover the hole. Oh and God. so it was just felt like what this really ragtag operation. And we kind of made this thing and under the radar, I remember, you know, it, technically it was an ad supported network. We screened this for advertisers in New York and like dozens of them bolted for the door after the lights came up. They like didn't even want to look us in the eye. They're like, we're not putting. And I remember Donna Speciali, who became, I worked with for years at Turner, was the head of ad sales who, who I really loved. At the time she was at some, I forget what agency it was. She was a big buyer and she came up and she's like, I really like this and I'm going to watch you guys and I'm going to see how this goes. I'm not putting a nickel into this show. <laughs> and the only, the only thing, that, the only advertiser we had was Mike's Hard Lemonade on FX. They literally, nobody else would touch it, but Mike's Hard Lemonade. And then we just filled it with Mattress King commercials and a bunch of shitty local stuff. Right. But nobody, you know, that stuff was too, too edgy for them to put any advertising in. But that was like the foundational DNA for the network. And, I recently caught up and binged The Bear. I don't know if you saw it. Yes. I loved it. Blew me away. I thought it was brilliant, and I was like, "Man, there it is! Some of that same DNA is still in that place." Yeah. Uh, in addition to the Shield, Nip Tuck, Rescue Me. Yeah. Uh, a very, very different sort. What is Rescue Me? A comedy or a drama? Yes. Yeah, <laughs> I go. only bought the I bought only bought the original script, and then I had transitioned over to NBC. I was yeah. already in transition. I had the job and I had the, in my side pocket while I, in my right pocket was kind of rescue me. And in my left pocket was this thing called the office that I'd been given the tape of that. I was like, all right, I'm not making that at FX. I'm going to NBC. Yeah. So, yeah. We talked a lot about the office being the savior of the office. My name is Earl, which, yes. you know, saved the office as well. It so did, thank really. you for that one. 30 Rock, yeah. Friday Night Lights, Heroes, I mean, and then on the unscripted side, Deal or No Deal, America's Got Talent, and many, many more. This is incredible. The year that, that you, you well, you leave again yeah. in 2007, 69 Emmy nominations that year across all of these shows. It's, uh, I mean, it's a huge... Uh, legacy that you left. Yeah, it was wild. You leave to go to Fox, but talk to me a little bit about that transition there for you. Did you feel like you got treated unfairly? At, look, at the time, I would say what was so ironic is the four years NBC had really gotten very entitled uh, of, you know, the landscape was really changing at this point. There were, you know, bona fide four networks now for, you know, about a decade at that point since 88 when Fox was founded. Only towards the end had they launched this little show called American Idol. So Fox was mm -hmm. about to go, you know, they had The Simpsons and things like that. So it was X-Files. Fox was really a bona fide challenger and always sort of did a lot of pound for pound of cool stuff that I always thought was cool on television. NBC had been at the top and gotten, you know, on the the the, friend, the ER, Friends, Seinfeld trifecta 
was just a juggernaut, but it was beginning to, you know, Seinfeld had gone off. It was coming down. Friends was on its last days. Law and Order was still on, but had, you know, they had all come down to earth and you could see the writing on the wall that it was about to really go from hanging on to the top to being bad, being in trouble. And that's when I joined and I was very naive thinking, well, I'm just going to be the savior of this place and I'll be like Brandon Tartikoff. I'll turn it around and everyone will tell me I'm a genius. But now we're also fighting a broader environment, you know, where it's the beginning, the early, early stages of digital consumption generationally, you know, this idea of watching day and day. And I, I know this in my gut. I'm like, broadcast television in my mind is in its last breaths of, of dominance. I, it, but I was like, everybody's got to face the facts that NBC, the juggernaut that it, what it was of turning on must-see TV Thursday night, those days are not coming back. And I just felt like it needed to be rebuilt from the ground up with really cool stuff that the next generation wanted to watch. Even if Grant Tinker, early in his career, who was Brandon Tartikoff's boss, he, at the time when they rebuilt it, way back in a different era, had this expression saying, first be best, then be first. And I always loved that. And I always thought it was really meaningful. First be best, then be first. When you're a first place network, that means billions of dollars. That means profits. That means everyone gets big fat bonuses and bragging rights. Right. When you're best, but not first and have slipped and you're losing, starting to lose a lot of that money, not so fun on the business level. And we were owned by General Electric at this. And GE was just used to this little cash machine, just Seinfeld comes and sell, you know, tells jokes at our giant retreat to guys who make locomotives and turbines and tractors. And <laughs> right. it's so cool. And then, you know, we were a small business in the GEO portfolio, but we paid a lot of cash. So it was a fast cycle business. You know, when you're making jet engines. That's a big capital thing that doesn't pay out for long cycles. You know, in television, you have a season and at the end of the season, it's like, oh, here's the cash and you can just, it's available. <laughs> yeah. It's not tied up in this big thing. So right. they liked us. We were just a big cash machine. But all of a sudden when it started turning really challenging and cash intensive, not so much fun from Fairfield. And <laughs> You know, as somebody said back in the day, they send the guys with the clipboards. And when they send the guys with the clipboards there to help, you really don't want the help. Like it's a bunch of consultants and people going, Brian, how are you? How are things? So why would you have done that? Why would you have put on that kind of show, for example, that people don't seem to enjoy? And you're trying to tell this like wonk from Fairfield, like, first of all, you are a tight ass MBA who has zero you don't even you have bad loafers on you certainly don't have a feel for fucking culture go talk to the jet engine guys because you you are not going to fix this place and the building was crawling with those people so i'm trying to put on some of these cool shows only other than heroes which was a bit of a hit right out of the gate and kind of a cultural thing but not enough like friends to single-handedly turn the network around and i thought we were doing really cool work but to be honest with you, I was getting almost, not only was I not getting credit, I was getting nothing but second guessing. I was rumored to be fired every other week. And so again, like a really, I went from this 
incredible FX thing where it was like the most fun thing, but it was three years. And all of a sudden I, I had that dream job, I thought, back at Brandon Tartikoff's desk with the actual thing. And even the day I did the job, I got an award called the Brandon Tartikoff Award, which was like kind of like the best of the best in broadcasting. And I went down and got the award in Miami. And I, I kind of told that story. Like I had a, the day I got it, I had this sinking feeling. I sat at his desk. I looked up at the bank of televisions and I was like, this is fucking cool. And I have made a terrible, terrible mistake coming here. And <laughs> so what was awesome is that the shows, the stuff we did, I was always really proud of. And it all then went on to have cultural impact and then business impact, like the office that is one of right. the biggest assets in their whole portfolio today. Right. But as we lived, it didn't start that way. <laughs> and so, you know, I was pretty much invited to not do that job after four years. And yeah, I was pretty fucking, uh, I was not, I was pretty bent out of shape over it all. Yeah. Fox gladly takes you. Yeah. Like very quickly. Like too quick. I was like, oh my God. I, that's what I was. That's I what kept I, stepping I, into staff meetings and going NBC. I mean, Fox, like I kept like, I was like, what am I doing back in one of these places? I can't believe it. Go on to have huge success at Fox, Brooklyn Nine. Not a lot of office folks, by the way, that you you bring over there. Yeah, Mindy Project. Yeah, uh, Last sure. Man on Earth, yeah. New yeah. Girl, Glee. Yeah, as well as tons of animated hits. Yeah, of all of the shows, hey, I have a question. Of all the shows that you've done, and don't pander because I'm here. <laughs> what are you the most proud of? There's there's different things for different different moments, you know. I mean, you were you okay. were talking about the shield and that experience of of kind of all of a sudden making a service, like completely repositioning a service that then went from a money losing, irrelevant thing to a profitable, what became kind of a really meaningful brand was was and and we had so much fun. I mean, we were just those shows you mentioned and you know, we won the first primetime Emmy and, and Golden Globes Awards. I mean, when Michael Chiklis first got up to take the first Emmy, I literally grabbed his arm like, what are you doing? Like, you didn't win. And he was like, he looked at me and he's like, just go with it. Because he did win. And, and everybody was like, what the hell is that? So there's experiences like that. I've had, you know, moments in other shows. But all kidding aside, the experience of The Office where it was Look, at that point, I had made a decision. I'm probably going to get fired from this job at some point. I'm hanging on by a thread. I am going to just fall on my sword for the things I believe in. And somebody had given me this advice. Like the worst thing you could do is sell out and do what the bosses want you to and then fail. Then you can't even look yourself in the mirror. So I was <laughs> like, if they fire me, at least I want to say, even if they don't work, I want to say, well, I put on what I believed in because I have that power to fight for some things. And the office was just, I don't know, just from minute one, I'm like, this is, this is one of those ones. I'm, I'm just not giving up on this thing. And then because it had like really good people involved and it was such a moment in time for all of us, you know, I'm looking at our picture here, Brian, when, you know, at the one we one night we won the Emmy and, and they're hoisting me up. And yeah. I love looking at that photo, not just because, it's it's pure, you know. I mean, as we know, show business is a is a rough and tumble game, man. And and everybody's got scars to to do. You know, I just shared some of mine, you know. And 
but it's in its pure moment when the thing happens and it's sort of coming out the way you dreamed and you, and look, some talented people are, are very complicated. I, I had a really amazing experience on 30 rock. I, I adore Tina. She's an incredible talent. Tina had a star named Alec Baldwin, an enormously talented guy and obviously publicly enormously complicated. And so, yeah. you know, there's a, you know, as Lauren said one point after Alec quit for the 14th time, after he had won the Emmy the night before, his agent calls up to say, I just have to inform you that Alec is quitting the show, which is at this point literally was about the seventh. And I remember Lauren at the time saying, Alec will realize in retrospect that this was a good time, you know, and <laughs> but when you're in it and this moment of this picture, I'm literally looking out of my left eye over here is pure joy for people who some of whom needed a job and had a great one and others who just realized they were part of something special and we we got the affirmation and that just for me and the fact really as it is for you the fact that then it went on to be one of those rare shows where like now now you're into like kids who weren't even born are were, right. at the time we're watching right. and going right. i really love it you know and that's that those are really rare at this era. And so that's a pretty cool. Yeah. Do you consider yourself a creative? Yes. In my heart, I've always had that temperament. I think it's why I both succeeded in, in a certain respect. Would, and some of those struggles, I will say that I had that I'm outlining with the system and the man. I just never wanted to be like the bureaucrat suit that is just in the suite going like, sure thing. Yeah, let's just do that. Cause that's safe and we'll keep our jobs. Yeah. I, I was always kind of an irritant and I think those who appreciated it and, and probably at a younger age, I was too much, you know, at times, you know, they were just, they, they don't want you always trying to rock the boat. So, you know, that's part of what a creative is, you know, and the entre entrepreneurs are a version of that. They're, they want to press up. They want to do what other people haven't done. And they got to kind of have a blind belief in their ideas. And so, yeah, that's where I'm the most comfortable. And that's why I'm, look, I'm, I'm not ever going back to those jobs again. Those big executive jobs are behind me. Uh, Bill Lawrence, co-creator of Spin City, yeah. Scrubs. Uh, was quoted as saying, every morning, all the writers start the day with a cup of coffee talking about what assholes the network executives are. Kevin seems like one of us enough that you find yourself not hating him. <laughs> That's so funny. You know, I've known Bill a long time. I haven't seen him. He was literally my neighbor for a bunch of years in my house just before this one. And uh, I really appreciate hearing that, but he's funny. Uh, that's perfect, Bill. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. Thank you for taking the light, and you're going to shine it all over the world, and it makes me really happy. I never imagined that I would get the chance to carry this honor and help be a part of this legacy. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Imagine you ask two people the same exact set of seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver. 
and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including actress and star of the mega hit sitcom Friends, Courtney Cox. You can't go around it, so you just go through it. This is a roadblock. It's going to catch you down the road. Go through it. Deal with it. Comedian, writer, and star of the series Catastrophe, Rob Delaney. I shouldn't feel guilty about my son's death. He died of a brain tumor. It's part of what happens when your kid dies. Intellectually, you'll understand that it's not your fault, but you'll still feel guilty. Alt-rock icon, Liz Fair. That personal disaster wrote Guyville. So everything comes out of a dead end. And many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, stories from the frontiers of marketing. This week, I'm talking to acclaimed musician and entrepreneur, Mr. Worldwide himself, Pitbull. A lot of artists in general, people that are very creative, sometimes tend to overthink. That's one of my number one rules. Don't ever overthink. You can think ahead, but don't overthink. And what I mean by that is when they start to write a record, they're like, oh, that's not the line. Oh, that's not this. Oh, it's not that. And everybody has a creative process. I'm not knocking it. For me, I just let it flow. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark more than ever. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We're in a historic moment right now. Yeah. It's clear whatever happens with the resolution of these strikes, both the WGA and SAG-AFTRA, this is going to change entertainment and television Mm -hmm. in many ways. Well, first off, do you believe the strike should be happening? Yes and no. I Yes, because frankly, they're really legitimate issues. And I, I really feel for the artist community, but no, because it's, look, at this moment, it's kind of the only mechanism to try to force some sort of change. But the landscape of the industry is changed beyond what the strike will be able to affect. So while I'd like to believe that on the other side of the strike, the foundations in place were like, we've changed the industry for the better and gotten our thing. It's I've gotten divorced. I remember my divorce lawyer saying at the time, like, no one wins. It's just how much are you willing to compromise? So there's not going to be a win. It will be a compromise all the way around. And look, the unfortunate thing is I've been asked, uh, like, even there's somebody from the New York Times, like, begging me to come on their podcast and talk because I'm like a neutral person who understands all the issues here. And I've avoided it all because I, I will shoot my mouth off and regret it. But what happened here is that a bus rolled into town called Netflix that everybody got on that party bus. And everybody, when they were firing money all over the place and had this new model, my last thing as a corporate irritant, I always felt like this is an unbelievable thing they're building that's an incredible consumer experience. And don't you think this is going to be a problem for us? And all the powers that be were like, they don't, they're going to go out of business. And they kept selling all of our stuff over there. But look, I also felt like the artists got on that party bus. The irony, part of the writers 
you know, the series writers issues right now is it's only 10 episodes. You know, they don't, they don't have big robust writers rooms. I mean, I used to talk to writers who are like, why would I come do your network show for 22? I only have to do 10 at Netflix. This is great. And, right. You know, they were ordering at like a six to one ratio from what we, so everybody was taking the money and having a great old time with Netflix and Netflix Uberized the business. You know, they turned it upside down for better and worse. And the studios, they were on the party bus because they were selling, we were selling them all of our stuff, really arrogantly misjudging the impact it was going to have, not really getting out ahead of like, well, what do we have to do? Should we take this thing seriously? What should we do? We just thought we could somehow wait it out or wait till they die. And yet we were fueling them with our stuff by giving them our shows. And the studio leadership did almost the worst thing. You know, I, I said to someone the other day, like, I'll stick with this somehow traffic analogy. Like, if you're going to go through a yellow light, you want to kind of go fast enough to go through safely through that yellow light before it turns red. The worst thing to do is to slow down and go slow and then gun it and then go through a red light, which is sort of what the studios did with streaming. They right. waited and let this thing begin to seriously erode and you could see where it was going to erode their business and then lurched into it, further accelerating their problems. And so what we have now is a business where the legacy companies have underlying issues. Bob Iger came out a few weeks ago and said, these guys don't get it. I mean, it wasn't a great look for Bob. It's certainly, I'm sure, a moment he regrets <laughs> yeah. having doing it with the billionaires conference behind him. Really a bad look. What he's not wrong about, though, is that these this strike is not striking against the business we just talked about, this monopolistic business that was born almost 100 years ago that we actually got to participate in, Brian. It's now a stressed business that is stretched where the legacy players, the Warner Media Discoveries, NBCUs, Paramount, who yesterday sold Simon & Schuster and is they're going to start they're going to have to strip down the pieces of these companies they're not going to come rocketing back in business as usual and for the most part the digital players are not in our business as we knew it i mean amazon does you know i'm apple's doing in a, some really cool shows right now last i checked that's not their core business they sell these things that's right. and they make and they make trillions of dollars i mean they're they're highly profitable doing that so the power base has shifted, how the business work is shifting. And when the actors who are robbed of their residual payments, which was a hard-earned thing that when you got a good job that could pay your rent for the rest of your life, that I feel for the hard, you know, I, I, I love actors, you know, because it, it, I mean, it's such a beautiful thing. And actors are wonderfully naive in terms of like, I just want to do the work. And then like, yeah, I'm okay with it. But just like, let me have my, let me have my checks that come for that work I did. And now they get checks for like 35 cents. But in order to report that, you have to have transparency on the actual usage of the service, which Netflix started the game by never reporting any of that. Right. And they still don't. And unless there becomes more transparency, you're not going to really be able to measure. So it was imperfect, but we used to have a thing called rating and in the box and box office, which were measurements of success. Right. 
those don't exist. So my point is, it's a much more complicated tapestry. The issues are legit, but the strike mechanism, look, do I think everyone should have held hands and together gone, listen, guys, we're all in this together with different agendas, but this business, we got to figure out a different path forward. Yeah, but they didn't. You know, they let it get to the 11th hour and then, and then a strike happens. So I think the double strike, I think the actors really will together force some step forward, but I, right. I'd love to say it's all going to be fixed. It's not going to be, unfortunately. Well, as someone said to me, well, it's been 50 years since the last actor strike. Yeah. Ronald Reagan yeah. was SAG president at the time and the issues were much the same. Yes. As it has been explained to me, which is actors sitting around when shows were rerun yes. and saying, why are we, people are still enjoying our work. Why are we not getting money for that? Yes. And I mean, there's other issues and I, I don't mean to belittle the, all of them, but that there was a negotiated rate that at least everyone could accept yeah. Yeah. for work that now it doesn't exist. It's interesting. It does feel like which I think has been the problem a little bit like trying to put a pin on something that keeps moving. Yes. That the way things are consumed, the way yes. monetization formula could be made, it's all shifting so quickly. Yes. But also let's not, if you, if you really even just back up even further in the Ronald Reagan era, even up until the office area era where the writing, you know, as we remember, the Office was, if not the first show, one of the very early shows onto the iPod, you know, when all of a sudden yes. there was video that could be downloaded and streamed legitimately. That's right. So let's just use from that, you know, the beginning filmed entertainment, whether it was at the box office or on your television, was the pinnacle of cultural consumption. Like that was what the kids talked about, that was the rite of passage. You went to the movies with your friends. You sat around the television and tuned in at eight o'clock at night. Everybody bought Michael Jackson's thriller. It was a very almost sort of monopol monopolistic kind of environment. The environment today between the gaming world and the interactive and all the TikTok and everything pressing in from the sides that is highly demanding of your time and then the streaming business that has then upended the middle of it, you have something that is a much more complicated landscape to manage. So it's true, the issues are still the same. And at the time, I'm sure they had really rational reasons why they weren't, you know, you'd be getting going back to the earlier artist employees when, well, you worked for us, you were contract players and you did what we did. So then it get no, you know what? We're not your employees. We need to be paid as our independent contractors of sorts with real rights, which is what the unionization helped bring about. They are the same fundamental issues. But unfortunately, now the ability to is not, it's not the, the five families at the top that just say, all right, once I wave right. this wand, it just is fixed. They're public companies under tremendous stress that their growth engine is highly compromised. It's not clear what's really driving these companies forward. They're very big, probably in some regards need to be stripped down and recombined and probably will. And so this makes these things much more complicated, unfortunately. And the streaming business, yeah. again, a large degree, they're talking about the fact that, you know, I mean, I read an article recently about 
Orange is the New Black cast on how early days of Netflix, they had this international hit and the actors would go places and be mobbed, but then they literally would get like checks for $1.95. And they're like, wait a minute, I thought when you had a hit, you were paid at least enough to pay your rent. And that's heartbreaking, but it does show that Netflix created a different model and they don't report still to this day, here's how many actual people used and saw your thing. So maybe there is a, a way to create these tiers, but the business is betwixt and between. This new player that sort of took over and then the older players that tried to transition but just have a lot of, they're not, they're not really one and the same. Yeah. It's very complicated. We talk a lot about the success of The Office in after we were done. And here's the thing that sticks with me. You have people who made a lot of money, networks that made a lot of money off of The Office, and then syndication deals that happened both with Turner mm -hmm. and with some small network syndication. And NBC Universal decides seven years after The Office is done and all the money that has been earned and paid and all of that, that it's worth $565 million to reacquire the office. Mm -hmm. It's hard to think that they're not making money. <laughs> On that. Oh, yes. I mean. That, that is yeah. highly, highly, highly profitable. They don't, they don't spend that kind of money for something that is not an earner, you know? Yes. yes. Right. And so where is, how does that trickle down? Like if you have to me an acknowledgement that there's a valuable property and it's not just the office, obviously it's just more personal for yeah. me. I hope she wouldn't be upset that I shared this, but Jenna Fisher at one point said, you know, what's crazy. And this was when that figure was out there all the time is that, you know, a person reads that and thinks, oh, Look how much money the actors oh, yeah. got. Like, look they're how rich. look how good they're yeah. doing. They're yeah. they are rich. Yeah. Yet the formula remains remains unchanged, and that that to me is just confusing. You know, that is the age old thing. And like, this is we could talk about this for an hour in and of itself. But the you know the studio accounting, which has always been the thing, even going back to the heyday of Hollywood crazy people with different pieces of ownership and underlying financing and weird structures that when it would go through the accounting system, it was always an old joke of like, Oh, we did it. And amazing. You're, you're that's still losing money. <laughs> right. And because of the, right, the, right. How many back end deals actually, that, make, that does actually go back you know, decades and decades and decades because a lot of cost would get loaded in and they, you know, had acquired right. big studio lots and things that were getting loaded into that. And, you know, just as you do in your own personal accounting, where if you made some money, you try to have write-offs and like, oh, okay, well, I didn't really make a right. uh, hundred grand on that. I only made 20 because look at all these costs. So studios have always done the same thing. And sadly, it has taken lawsuits usually for people being challenged to go in or audits if they're not as public to go in and say, you know what, this doesn't feel right. We're banding together. We got lawyers and accountants and we're going to go in and find and then there was either some giant settlement or a case where finally things would be evened out. And so, yeah, those dynamics have, have been around for, for too long. And yet 
there still was the irony is even the the office arguably one of the last of the good ones from the old days quote unquote right and even that you can you can feel your own you know you're 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 an upbeat guy like you're a, but you've had your moments you're like wow really thought that would have had a little more trickle down here okay but now you look forward to guys who are doing look there is no streaming equivalent because there is no multi-generational 200 episode plus there is no syndication it's just a one-time air on a streamer that has a moment and then drops to the bottom of an algorithm so there's not even even if the precedents were there like the whole system that could create the trickle down is broken down and that's it in a nutshell yeah. where i do believe it will ultimately get reconstituted and i think to sort of cut to the bottom line this strike will be a brick in the wall of rebuilding a new system on the other side, which will have different players. Because ultimately, I also don't really understand myself how once you have something that has been a success at the top, and it, whether, if you had a hit movie or a hit show, you know, it would live on where it would be. Oh, you could see it on an airplane. You could watch it on your before you eat dinner at night on your local channel you could sell it overseas and people in other countries would see it now once that thing is cycled through it's at the bottom of the algorithm not only be, not being seen but not even expressing itself you know the real hits were rides at a theme park and had t-shirts made and all these right. other revenue streams i don't understand a one aperture business where everything just has one moment in it and it's disposable because that is still something that costs billions and billions of dollars to produce. So historically, the ones that, you know, the hits used to pay for all of the failure. And it's, I'm not saying it's justified, but it is one of the reasons why they always claim they weren't making money because nine of the 10 failed. So they had to pay with the one that worked. So they were like, we're not making money. But right. I only giving this detail because the the tapestry now of the business itself is different, and it's going to be a transition that is just not. It's it's still in that transition, and it's going to take years for that to kind of reconstitute. But this will be a brick in the wall, and that, in a sense, it's good that both unions went out. Otherwise, it, nothing would happen. Right, Kevin, you're the best. You stayed way longer than. Oh my god! I, I didn't promised, even realize we were but, blowing through it. Well, hopefully, <laughs> no. Hopefully, I, the uh, listeners are, hung with it. Yeah. Yes, you are. Uh, you are such a delight. One of my favorite people ever, and uh, I wish you all the best success. And for this to resolve itself in some way soon, so everyone can get back to making making great television. Yes, it will. I mean, uh, there are some quiet talks going on now. I mean, I don't know. I think we're looking at the October is my gut, but maybe sooner, hopefully. And dude, this is a lot of fun. I can't believe we blew through so long. You're, you're, so I, you're the easiest guy in the world to talk to. You're great at what you do. And uh, hitting you on a date for some mutually bad golf very quickly. All right. Okay. I love it. Kevin, okay. thank you so much. See you, buddy. Kevin, thank you so much for joining me today. Yes, on Golf Soon, but more importantly, I appreciate your perspective on the current state of entertainment. I hope that our reps 
can have conversations that are as, as honest and enlightening as the one we just had. Listeners, I'm going to be back next week, as well as I always am. If you need something to do while you wait, you can follow, rate, review this podcast, or if you're too busy for all that, just tune in next week. Either way, have a great one. Off the Beat is hosted and executive produced by me, Brian Baumgartner, alongside our executive producer, Ling Lee. Our senior producer is Diego Tapia. Our producers are Liz Hayes, Hannah Harris, and Emily Carr. Our talent producer is Ryan Papa Zachary, and our intern is Thomas Olson. Our theme song, Bubble and Squeak, performed by the one and only Creed Brett. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. And like always, we'll be here every week. You'll hear from TV writers, actors, comics creators, pop culture critics. Nothing is off the table. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts.